Welcome to this weekly review of the Aquila Report, or the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, this is uh, Dominic Aquila, uh, along with Paul Harrell. As we come to you week to week, uh, when just before the uh, newsletter of the week uh, comes out with the top 10 articles that uh, were hit by you, the readers of the Aquila Report. Uh, so we just review those as a way of one, just explaining what uh, articles the you as the readers are interested in and then also uh just tease to get you to look at the rest of uh the quill report so if you are not a regular reader quill report just know that every day we post about eight new articles and uh that uh, you can uh, click on those you can just read the headlines or the tease that's there if that's sufficient go on to the next uh, but whatever is clicked on then becomes counted and we get our top 10. And so we have the opportunity of doing that each week uh, and give the day before it comes out. So today's uh, Monday, April 5, and the newsletter will come out on Tuesday, the 6th. So we're uh, together again, Paul, and we seem like we have another interesting list that is before us that our readers have given to us. Absolutely. And it has to do a lot with, uh, you know, trying to, I think, preserve, uh, you know, the uh, you know, biblical worldview, quite honestly, I don't know how else to say it. Uh, yeah. you know, is, does the Bible mean what it says or are we going to make excuses to try to let it conform to the culture? That's exactly right. And just to, you know, let you know that the articles are range from, uh, biblical and theological themes, uh, about churches and their ministries, about individuals, uh, their histories, or maybe historical individuals. Uh, sometimes we are touching on some world news that have implications for and touch on what uh, the church is doing, uh, their lifestyle issues, reviews, and a well as opinion. So uh, it's not just these matters, but I one of the things that we can assume is that when uh, so many readers pick a particular uh, article, uh, that means that there is a level of interest in that particular one. And so we start with uh, one that touches on the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, just as all the other denominations uh, in 2020, because of COVID, uh, did not have their regular meetings. The Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA, uh, did not have its General Assembly. And the hope is that the rescheduled assembly, which is called the 48th General Assembly, um, which was supposed to be in Birmingham last year, will be in St. Louis this year, and it's scheduled to come at the latter part of June, about June 28 to July 2, and it'll be meeting in St. Louis. So um, one of our ruling elders, Brad Isbell, uh, has writ wrote an article, which is the number one article, entitled Significant Issues Portend Vigorous Debates at the 2021 PCA General Assembly. And uh, what he says is one of the pull quotes here is, what's at stake? Many consider that the disposition of the judicial cases, which concern investigations and actions of Missouri Presbytery regarding John, uh, teaching elder or Reverend John uh, Greg Johnson and Revoice Doctrine, uh, and the fate of the various related overtures will signal the PCA's future course vis-a-vis -vis the allowability of gay Christian or same-sex same attracted officers and pastors. That seems to be the what the buzz is, and we'll see a couple of other articles that sort of touch on this in at least a tangential way. 
Uh, so what uh, Brad Isbell is uh, saying is that uh, let's at least recognize that this is going to make this General Assembly uh, very significant in the very short history as far as the whole range of church history goes of the Presbyterian Church in America. He begins the article by saying, tough times are ahead for the Presbyterian Church in America. Most members and indeed many elders are unaware of the looming crisis, but fault lines more or less visible in the past may soon become uh, gaping chasms accompanied by a great shaking that cannot be ignored. The issue is simply this, will the PCA have gay Christian pastors and other church officers or not? So that's a serious um, issue, and it's before us. There are a number of judicial cases that are going, working their way through the church courts. And uh, so this will be one that will be front and center in St. Louis in one form or other. And uh, if you want to, as you read this article, there are, uh, are hyperlinks that are in it that if you want some background to where things happened, how they came about, all you do is click on them and they will open up to other articles so that you can get a sort of historic flow uh, in this narrative. So this is a really challenging and provocative uh, 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 e- uh, article by uh, ruling elder uh, Isbell. Uh, by the way, he's ruling elder at the Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. My, I, I really, my favorite part of the article, honestly, is this new term. I could because I love being able to define things, um, and maybe it's been written about before, but revoice theology is mm-hmm. in here. I, I like that. I, I think we need to use that and, you know, become familiar with the definition of it and then label it. And, uh, I mean that the other side may not like that, but I'm a fan of, uh, you know, using, uh, words and, and let's, uh, let's, let's call this what it is. Uh, it's not biblical theology. And, uh, the end of this, uh, article here, Brad says, uh, finally, what can those who love the PCA do about this? First, they ought to pray for the presbyters and the courts of the church. Second, they ought to encourage their pastors and ruling elders to make every sacrifice to attend the General Assembly in the most unusual and critical year and to attend as well-informed participants. In this way, whatever the outcome, PCA folks can at least know that momentous and future-shaping decisions were made by a court that truly represented the opinions and convictions of the PCA. And I thought to an article that made the uh, top 10 list several, several weeks ago, and it was uh, an article about the United Methodists and uh, the situation that they're going through. And I can't remember the exact article uh, or the author, but it made the point that the leadership uh, somehow was, you know, making these decisions when obviously the majority of uh, the Methodists were rejecting what their own leaders were saying. And so we had this interesting uh, question, which was, how is this happening? You know, how how are the people who are, you know, making these decisions and then they're getting voted down? How how does that happen? How do you have a, a group or a denomination that ends up with leaders who are not accurately reflecting the thoughts and opinions and beliefs of the majority of of? And I know it happens. I mean, I know it happens with any kind of, you know, a representative organization from time to time. But I think it's something that we we don't want to happen. No, and exactly right. And this is where the uh, we need to be alert uh, to the things that are taking place in uh, not only in the 
BCA, but in other denominations, because some of these very things that are touching on the cultural and social issues are because they're, they're running through the church. They're, they're something that's front and center uh, to the church, and we just you know can't get away from them uh, without uh, really uh, you know looking hard. And the effect that the um, you know that these uh, events and these thought patterns uh, will uh, affect the church. So the, we just need to be aware of that. Now, one of the things that um, uh, Brad Isbell in this article mentions, and well, as part of his um, uh, who he is at the very end, his his name is hyperlink. So if you want to email him and have further discussion with him, he'd be glad to do that. Uh, the he's also part of a nonprofit organization that provides assistance to ruling elders uh, who desire to attend Preston Church and American General Assembly, but are maybe from smaller churches and can't afford the registration fee or travel or lodging and, and may need some help. And the name of the organization is MORE, M-O-R-E, uh, the M-O standing for something I can't remember, but the R-E refers to ruling elders. So if you are a ruling elder or you know of a smaller church with a ruling elder would like to go but uh, isn't able to afford it, uh, then you can just contact uh, Brad Isbell and he'll be glad to uh, get you the information uh, necessary for that. So uh, look for that uh, also as a means of, um, you know, guiding you and directing you along the way. Well, that's uh, what's coming up in the PCA. Well, number two touches on the revoice. So if you're not certain about it, there's some more uh, if information that then comes in article number two that was hit the most last week by the readers of the Aquila Report. And this is written by Sean Mathis, who is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and has a ministry in Denver, uh, Colorado. Uh, the title, Revoice Gays, uh, Straight Friends Planning a Life Together. Uh, the uh, he says in the uh, in part of the pull quote that revoice rocked the reformed world and we can probably put the evangelical world in general uh, in 2018 introducing the first uh, coming out event that began normalizing homosexuality in the church in 2020 they introduced the first coming out of a gay straight couple. Uh, and there is in this uh, article that was a op-ed piece um, that he wrote uh, that he mentions uh, this uh, couple, their pull quote, um, is there in a deep dive, deep dive revoice webinar entitled Better Together. In this webinar, we discover this gay straight duo. Uh, it is there that we discover why a couple may be more descriptive than duo who are these men? Uh, the gay man is Art Perea, a student minister, ministry director at Hope Presbyterian Church, PCA. His straight friend is Nick Galluccio, a youth pastor at uh, Stonecrest Community Church. Art describes his friendship with Nick as a family and household. And those are his words. Uh, why did he use the word household? Because they moved in together. And so they maintained their gay straight uh, concept, but the question is, uh, 
redefining uh, moving in just as roommates, as you would do if you were just uh, moving in somebody at school or college or uh, two singles living together, but they term themselves a family. And it goes into more detail within the article. And so um, Sean just raises uh, this uh, question for us as he gives his op-ed in terms of what does this portend for the church as well, since now these are individuals who are actually engaged in uh, two particular local uh, congregations. I'm just going to read this. Art's pastor is supportive. He is behind their endeavor, encouraging them to carry on with their plans. According to Art, he even gave them friendship premarital counseling. Interestingly, Art realized early on that such feelings were wrong. Such thoughts brought shame and guilt. He even thought he should leave the relationship for his own good. Instead, he rationalized the temptation, turning it on its head. He explains it this way, quote, So when I started having, like when I started realizing, oh, Nick is cute, I was like, oh, man, I have to get away from this friendship. Like, it's not good for my spiritual health. But all the evidence was otherwise. It was really good for my spiritual health. I know Jesus so much more from my relationship, and also he's cute. This rationale brings up questions that churches have not had to consider before. This is number two on the list, this article. This had me scratching my head, Uh, but here we go. I mean, at some point, uh, you know, just to be honest, when I was reading it, I I just kept hearing, you know, Romans 1 and and the idea of just being given over uh, to a a depraved mind or or in, in a way just one of the comments down here also I had said something about the phrase self-deceived comes strongly to mind. Absolutely. That's that's what this is. Yeah. And so, again, it's one of those articles that uh, challenges because it's happening uh, in real time. And uh, so you could read it uh, and click through some of the uh, hyperlinks that are in the articles because it takes you to the original sources so that you're able to read those uh, on your own. It's not just something that's thrown out there and you wonder where did that come from. You can actually uh, go to the original source. So that one by uh, Reverend uh, Sean Mathis. Well, number um, three uh, article is one by Samuel Say, S-E-Y. Uh, Samuel is a Ghanaian. Uh, Ghanaian. Uh, he is from Ghana, lives in uh, uh, in uh, Canada, and he writes and blogs quite a bit, and um, he really is, sort of has his finger on the pulse of what's going on with reference to the other uh, issue in the church today that we've had many articles that have been clicked on as one, two, three, four, and on the Eclair Report over the weeks, uh, dealing with critical race theory. Uh, And he entitles this one, uh, Do You Love Black People? And he says, if you love black people, you should hate critical race theory. If you love critical race theory, you'll be tempted to hate people, especially black people who hate critical race theory. And of course, he's one who is a black person who doesn't like or maybe he hates critical race theory. It may be the stronger word that he uses that. And uh, he argues in this um, article that when 
uh, we've used the categories of critical race theory. And as those of you who've listened to this podcast know that uh, we have asserted and uh, the, the whole background to great critical race theory is really based on a, a Marxist um, ideology and principles that uh, then are in terms of how we put people in boxes with reference to who they are. And the intent here is to say that the whole, all of the problems are the result of the, um, the oppressors uh, overdoing, overrunning and overruling on the oppressed. And most of the oppressors are basically white, at least in the uh, North American iteration of it. And therefore, the oppressors are the ones who are doing all wrong. They're the ones who brought all the problems into the life of the culture. And the oppressed cannot, um, you know, they can't do anything wrong because they are powerless. And so they are to rise up and take over and be uh, become more powerful. So that's his background to do you love black people? And so he's asking that even of himself as a black person. And he says, but critical race theory is such that it really militates against, uh, you know, black people. So one quote he has here is God loves black people as much as he loves everyone else. That's why he rebukes black people just as much as he rebukes everyone else. Christ shows no partiality. Uh, he, uh, we should be more like him and less critical uh, of a more less like critical race theorists. The Bible is just as sufficient for teaching on how to love black people as it is for teaching you how to love everyone else. You don't need to follow critical race theory to learn how to love black people. Just follow Christ. So that's basically the summary uh, of this, where he's challenging this notion that of this more sociologically based Marxist based uh, theory that's being imposed a lot and it's sort of riddling itself through and running itself through a lot of the culture. And unfortunately, it's coming into the life of the church. And Samuel say has uh, taken that on and he's done it very provocatively and very well uh, to challenge the notions and some of the presuppositions that are there uh, for people to consider. You know, it's really if you take away all the noise and you just look at the uh, look what's happening, those who are proclaiming Christ and proclaiming the reconciliation that he provides uh, with us to God, as well as with us to other people, regardless of our differences, including skin color, you're being called racist. Uh, just think about that. That's you're actually proclaiming the gospel. And if you take away all the noise and you're saying that, I know I, I love all people. I, I think all lives matter or, you know, I, I love everybody um, because that's that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow God's commandments. And our culture says, oh, then no, you're racist. And, and I, fa- I find li- I find that uh, to be very affirming, actually, because this message uh, of Christ and following Christ is is causing this allergic reaction. Uh, if you really just want to simplify it down to that. And then you get rid of all of this other noise. Those who keep trying to bring this back to no, 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 wait, critical race theory is wrong uh, because it's, you know, assigning guilt on an entire race of people just because of what they look like. You know, the Christ message is different. Oh, no, you, you must be racist and you're supporting white evangelicalism. I, I, I just think um, it's actually encouraging that the gospel is uh, is is being is being hated. I mean, we we were told that this message is is not one that's, you know, easy to hear. 
Exactly. And that's the reason I think it's good when we have these discussions. And just as a background, the part of the rationale behind the quill report is that we're not advocating a particular position. It's not the active. The principle of starting out is that we will post articles we don't necessarily agree with uh, theoretically if it's going to challenge us. And I believe that our readers are discerning. They are challenged. They know how to look at um, issues and uh, investigate, uh, follow sources through and not just operate, you know, in a knee jerk reaction. And so um, we want to expose these things from someone who has reported it. And and preferably if it's going to be something that in terms of our editorial position will be in contrast to that that we still will run it if it's someone who is presented rationally, reasonably, so that we can see it and hear it from that individual as opposed to us uh, developing a caricature of it. Then Mm. we can interact, and uh, we shouldn't be afraid of that. Sometimes I'll get, as the editor of the Equal Report, uh, some uh, emails that say, why are you running this uh, these kinds of article, this person is this background or that background. He comes out of this school of thought or that school of thought. And I said, because he or she presented the matter well, and we need to know what's being said. And if we don't know what's being said uh, from others than ourselves, then we 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 can't be sharp. And uh, getting that contrast helps to sharpen us. And so I hope that will really help us all to um, you know realize how important that really uh, that really is. So I would commend uh, to you, uh, Samuel says article, do you really love uh, black people? Because I think it is one of those that challenges uh, the uh, notions that we have that you can't, if you don't follow kind of critical race, you can't love. He's saying the opposite and he's challenging that notion. So I think it's really helpful. So that was number uh, three. And number uh, four is it sort of takes it in a completely different direction. Interestingly, I would not have guessed this. I usually try and say, where will our people be when they come up and what articles will interest them? And there's this one is called What Church Statistics Conceal, not reveal, but concealed by Mark Marshall. And he is writing this from a person who's inside of right now of the Anglican Church in North America, AC. And A or Akana. Um, the uh, this is a church that started a number of decades ago, came coming out of the Episcopal Church, the TEE, the Episcopal Church of uh, North America, and um, and he is he mentions very straightforwardly his uh, position that he is more of an Orthodox uh, Anglican. He started out as in the Presbyterian system, and he found he liked the Anglican structure of worship and the like, but he was still maintaining his orthodoxy. And so he just goes through some analysis because of, um, he says, I read with interest and appreciation a post from Living Church's Covenant blog on the growth and decline of the Anglican Church in North America. And since he was in it, he took notice of that. And uh, he says the my observation is that it, this is talking about how the church has grown and what things have happened. He said, but it, my observation is that although church statistics, statistics, when compiled diligently, are a good measure of baptisms, those joining, those attending, those dying, they are not really good a measure 
of those who are being repelled, that is, people who are leaving. And then he gives some a personal example that uh, when he moved away from his uh, college town, he was a part of a, a large uh, Presbyterian church. Uh, he left that to after he left college, he went to another town. Uh, he says, now, I was provoked by the leftist direction that was in that church, but um, nobody asked me why I left. And then partly it is just I left town, but still no one inquired. So he moved on to uh, more of an Anglican church with the Anglican Church of North America. And um, he again, nobody checked on why he had left the Presbyterian church. And he said, because uh, no one asked. So there was no way of statistically <laughs> knowing what. You know, uh, so they oh, they say here we're growing or uh, we're plateauing or static or whatever the case may be. So he just uh, and ends up the article that uh, discernment in how to achieve numerical growth is necessary. And uh, ACNA, a kind of uh, approach so far, reminds me of a town so eager to grow that it invites a large bar and outside music venue and hastily locates it in the middle of a residential neighborhood, impelling the residents to move away. Uh, the new uh, misplaced venue may be a great success in itself, but at what cost to the community? And now I've touched on to a larger topic, he says. But anyway, he says, go back to the original subject. Church statistics can measure church growth as well, uh, as is obvious, and he mentions a couple of, uh, a couple of reasons here. But what church statistics do not measure well is how ACNA's approach to growth may be harming the church as a whole and driving faithful people away. And so the need for the account of bishops is to take uh, the uh, take to heart this more urgent uh, matter of uh, what statistics reveal, that is what they really conceal. Um, this was the quote that stood out to me in this piece. One may already notice these observations beg some important questions. Among those is how much should one focus on numbers in the first place? Healthy ambition for the growth of the Lord's work is commendable, but it has been noted that the heavy emphasis put on numerical church growth at the Anglican Church in North America's founding has led to trouble. Uh, and then he quotes uh, Raymond uh, uh, Cash. Uh, and he says, quote, the problem facing the ACNA go back to the DNA set in 2009. When I heard the numerical goals as a delegate in Texas, I thought that was a mistake. Numerical goals tend to make you compromise to meet them. Faithfulness to the truth should be the goal. Numerical goals have you ordain and consecrate folks who are not ready because they hopefully help you reach the goal. Numerical goals have you abandon sacred traditions in lieu of missional options in hopes that they will prove much more user-friendly. Numerical goals have you ignore biblical standards for ordination to include those who should never have been ordained in order to avoid schism. Numerical goals promote politics rather than apostolic authority. And uh, I thought that was very interesting, um, you know, statement in this piece. And it brought to mind the Baptist campaign of uh 1954. I don't know. I don't know a lot about it, but I've read a little bit about it. Some editorializing about this campaign called "A Million More in '54." Uh, you guys could also look into that, and uh, that has a lot to do with setting a goal, setting a numerical goal, and you know, seeing what happened. Well, yeah, that I hadn't heard of that. That is a good one. And so we do get caught up in 
saying that the way we signify ourselves is, you know, by showing growth, which of course is one of the ways. But if there, if the wide, if the back door is as wide as the front door, or if people even are squeezing out the back door, uh, it's wise for a, a church council of board of elders or deacons, whatever the leadership is, to take note of that to say, are we meeting those needs in a way that uh, we should? So uh, I thought that was fascinating that the fourth red article was what church statistics conceal, and uh, so that's uh, something we'll in direct you uh, to uh the uh next article number five goes uh, sort of something that's a mirror for ministers uh written by pete hurst who is himself in the orthodox presbyterian church uh and living in virginia his says seven fascinating minister types and preaching and uh, so what their type is may say something about what their preaching is like. And so he himself being a preacher, uh, he uh, sort of knows it in from the inside. And he's made these observations over about almost 50 years of ordained ministry. Uh, and so uh, he, he gathers up seven of them and says, uh, maybe you should use this as a, an evaluation uh, kind of uh, thing. And so... Uh, for instance, uh, he says, the minister who is fascinated with theology. Uh, now, please don't understand, he says, orthodox biblical theology is very important. We have our creeds and confessions, and they are wonderful and needed. We want our seminaries to train our men to be faithful and thoroughly grounded in God's truth. However, the Sunday morning uh, sermon is not a seminary or college classroom. It's not a time for the minister to deliver what may be a very correct doctrinal sermon addressing all the different opinions and theories and dazzling us with his knowledge of Greek and Hebrew, but feeding the soul, not feeding the souls of his people. So, you know, he just warns against that. He also mentions a minister who is just fascinated with just preaching. In other words, just the technique mm -hmm. of preaching and speaking of that, that a uh, minister who's fascinated with popularity. Uh, number four is the minister who is fascinated with himself. Uh, this is an interesting one. He says, uh, this minister doesn't have the personality to be popular. So he's none of the ones that were just mentioned, but he tries really hard to be that uh, with novel or cute things said in preaching. But his sermons are pretty mediocre. His primary concern is not bringing his congregation to see the glory of God and have them meet with him. But instead, it's about him as head of the organization. Uh, often he is a, a control freak, and so his sermons are designed to keep the status quo as long as it allows him to get away with everything he cares about uh, that goes on in the church. He does all the thinking for the church leadership and handpicks the uh, church officers. For him, preaching is just another thing to keep the organization running smoothly. And so uh, Pete Hurst uh, reminds us that uh, if you're fascinated with yourself and you're preaching that most likely it's because you want to keep the system going to maintain yourself uh, in that. So that's a sort of an ingrown uh, kind of look at a person. And he mentions other things. Well, where does he come out? Well, uh, Peter, uh, maybe I'll let you, Paul, deal with that one because uh, this he tries to summarize in number seven. Uh, what a yeah. man should think about. 
the minister who's fascinated with God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and in being God's faithful servant to Christ's own. He is not who the previous six types are. He is zealous for the truth and lovingly proclaims the whole counsel of God to his people as best he can. He is not without his faults, but acknowledges his failures and seeks forgiveness. He and God's people know that while neither is perfect, yet they still pursue being faithful. He sees preaching of God's instruments, or he sees preaching as God's instrument to bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. He studies diligently and seeks to speak simply in order to be well understood by others, as Christ did. His heart is burning to proclaim God's word because it is his word, and he is a chosen instrument for this task. He strives to make relevant and searching application of God's truth to those listening. He bravely risks preaching that may offend some, but still humbly and lovingly proclaims the truth anyway. If he loses his employment, well, that is ultimately God's responsibility to provide for him and his family. He appreciates those who thank him for his labors, but if such is lacking, he is not deterred from his calling and responsibility. He is fascinated with the triune God and being faithful to God's calling. That covers it. Uh, That's where Pete was sort of moving through, but he says, uh, here's a checklist that uh, ministers of the gospel, those who are regularly preaching and maybe even teaching as well, uh, should consider in terms of, you know, what is the focus? What am I doing? What am I, what's my stance as some uh, uh, teachers of homiletics uh, talk about? And uh, so that is number five uh, with regard to uh, the different uh, style minister styles, as well as preaching styles. The, um, Next one is talks about goes takes us back into the cultural field. Uh, it's by Jordan Van Maren, uh, Jonathan Van Maren, excuse me. Uh, trans movements normalization keeps on going with another sad cover story, and uh, this issue, of course, one of the dominant things on before us is because of the issue of uh, women's sports that those uh, men who are, who were born biologically male who claim to be transitioned or transitioning from uh, a biological male to a at least a gender-wise uh, thinking self of, as a woman, as a female, then are participating in women's sports. Well, the, he may, he, those who are those, the tran- transcending or transitioning like that, are still uh, male and they still have the testosterone and their body functions and structure are different than a female's structure. And as a result, they seem to be breaking records, capturing records, outdoing uh, women as as they're competing with them. And people are afraid to uh, deal, you know, with it. So this article basically says it's becoming more normal but there are also some stories now that are beginning to come out where it's it's affecting you know what people are uh, thinking and maybe need to rethink that we not rush headlong into uh, accepting this. So it starts out with um, looking at the photo of Ellen, who started out as an Elliot uh, Page. On the front cover of Time magazine, one does not get the impression that a beautiful transformation is taking place. 
She says she found herself. She looks very much lost. Instead, she looks like someone who has endured a tragedy or perhaps someone who is currently living through one. Now, there was a great celebration when this article came out, May 29th of 2014. Time magazine published a cover story on the transgender tipping point featuring this uh, uh, Ellen uh, Elliot now, um, who was Elliot before, um, or in, in featuring Orange is the New Black actor Laverne Cox, a biological male identifying as a woman. The story was held at this groundbreaking moment for the trans movement, and the covers itself was as much a tipping point as the cultural shifts it describes. Media coverage of this sort, much like political polling, is designed to shape public opinion as much as gauge it. Uh, saying that there is a tipping point does not much uh, does much to make it so, and so it goes on to explain how all of that is being woven into the culture, and it's also going to uh, force effect, and already is in many instances, uh, different ministries of churches, local church ministries. So here's one of those edges, uh, one of those leading uh, trends that we need to be aware of because. It'll be coming to a neighborhood church that uh, you may be familiar with not too long in the future. Yeah, also, I mean, yeah, definitely, um, you know, you have to know that eventually <clears throat> there's going to be people who are going to be victimized by this aspect of culture. And they're going to they're going to need uh, they're going to need ministry in a, in a new way, uh, one that's definitely going to challenge people. Um, I, you know, this this is what's incredible to me um, is that. You know, if you're against this type of uh, surgery and stuff, you're going to be described as a, a transphobe. Um, uh, Times story was a glowing endorsement of Page's latest coming out. Their story, as well as the stories covering their story published in nearly every Western publication, obediently called Page a he. And the saga was one of a butterfly emerging from a cocoon. If a butterfly came out with various body parts severed, discarded and sewn back up. In Page's case, she underwent what is called top surgery, a double mastectomy health care, quote, health care in the age of trans includes the amputation of healthy breasts. And if you question that, you're a transphobe. Um, this is, uh, matter of fact, upon recording of this uh, podcast, uh, just some real world news or some political news, rather. This is all real world news, obviously. Um, uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson just vetoed a bill that would have made it illegal for uh, children under the age of 18 to get these types of surgeries. Um, and so the the pressure is real. I mean, even if you're trying to proactively be what's called a left of bang uh, in terms of we want to deal with the situation before it happens. Of course, it's happening right now. Uh, we don't want to wait until we have a problem. Uh, there's just an incredible amount of corporate pressure uh, from the secular uh, society that that don't want people to stand up and say this is wrong and this is not good. Um, and you know, fundamentally, what we're what we're looking at here is a society that wants to control every aspect of the reality, even though God is the one that created people to be who they are in every aspect. And, you know, we're wanting to shake our fists collectively and say, no, I'm in control. I'm really a man or I'm really a I'm really a girl. Um, it is uh, it, in, in a lot of respects. It should be looked at as a great opportunity to to preach uh, the gospel. That's right. And I think uh, we uh, this is something that uh, 
that we need to discuss because the cultural pressures are on and we see it coming up. And as uh, Paul just said, with a number of uh, states passing uh, laws uh, pro or con uh, in this regard. And we had a big dust up here in the last couple of weeks also with Governor Nome of South Dakota, yep. who initially vetoed a bill that was passed by the legislature that saying that uh, individuals who um, were identified at birth as a male or female then should compete no matter even if they're transitioning into with the same uh, sex with which they were born and not the one they are identified with so uh, a number of states have already passed things like that and have been approved and others have been vetoed like what happened in south dakota and also the same uh, it was a little different with uh, what um, Governor Hutchinson in Arkansas did, but uh, what the what that legislation was, but the it's in that same field and that same area of thought. So uh, it's going to come to the church. We need to be ready for because the press pressure is there to accept um, this, and that brings us then to the next article, number seven, and because it's in that same field of the pressure coming from the outside in uh, you know churches experience pressure from the outside with government pressure cultural issues and so forth and you know we live in two worlds if we're in the church uh, we have a foot in the as in the culture and we're citizens of the state and uh, we have a foot in the church and so we're citizens of the ecclesiastical norm and hopefully because of faith we're also citizens of heaven um, and so as we go back and forth, as navigating that, uh, we are impacted by, we're considering and asking in what way do these cultural issues, uh, are they, what, where they fit. And this one, uh, the next article is The First Gay Captain America is Coming, by written by Jim Dennison. Introducing a gay Captain America in the comic book is aimed at youth is nothing if not strategic. Uh, four ways to care for our children in our future. And so he provides four ways that we can uh, address that. And so he mentions here um, that uh, Aaron Fisher is coming back to comic books in June, part of the United uh, States of Captain America series. He is the Captain America of the railways, protecting runways and homeless youth. He is also openly gay. The comic feature will uh, featuring him will be published in June for Pride Month. My point, he says, is not that the first LGBTQ plus uh, identity identifying um, Captain America will soon enter popular culture, nor is it that we should uh, be shocked or we should uh, be shocked if we weren't shocked. Uh, it's that introducing a gay Captain America in a comic book ain't aimed at youth is nothing if not strategic. And that's the point that he really wants to get is that uh, these are not just happening just to be novel, but in terms of the popular culture being influenced. And then that has a spillover effect in the way people think and live. And then it winds up in the life of the church. So uh, this is a very provocative, very good article, very sane, again, rational, reasonable, and yeah. we commend that to you. Well, and you mentioned it eventually winds up in the life of the church. So to prove your point, just look at this top 10 list. Right now we're on this article, The First Gay Captain America. The article before this, trans movement normalization keeps on going. Okay. Then we have a couple articles before that. 
let's see here. Uh, the one about the gay straight friends planning a life together and the guy hopes to get married to a wife who's going to be okay with this this gay guy that he's best friends with that is going to continue to live in their household. And then you go all the way to article number one, which was um, the headline here, significant issues portend rigorous debates at the 2021 PCA General Assembly. The issue is simply this. Will the PCA have gay Christian pastors and other church officers or not? Now, keep in mind, this is just in the life of the church on the issue of, of gays or not. But if you if you go a little bit further and look at the culture, the culture the culture's way past being openly homosexual or having homosexual tendencies. The culture's now, hey, if somebody wants to get a double mastectomy and they're under 18 years old or they want to take puberty blockers, if you have a problem with that, there's something wrong with you. To, to right. prove your point. Absolutely. And that's what happens. And uh, so it's always rolling a large stone up the steep hill um, because the the matter is growing so much. And by the time we sort of become aware of it, uh, it's down the street a bit and it's more difficult to uh, stop. And so instead of dealing with it theoretically first and biblically as believers, uh, we get caught up in the just the cultural thing and it becomes more emotive and emotionally driven uh, than um, the, the, you know, biblically and theologically uh, driven so that we could put things into their categories and say what is good, what is acceptable, and what is not. So that's a good one. So it'll be coming in comic books soon uh, in June of this year uh, with this Captain America. Okay, number um, eight is... Uh, changes the subject a little bit from Nicholas uh, Botzik, uh, uh, burdening ourselves to death. We are more than ever and simultaneously more stressed out and outraged than ever. And it's maybe because of all the things that we've just been talking about, right? Yes. And so we're burdening ourselves to death. and uh, We need to, you know, get, get over it. Uh, Nicholas says, uh, God calls us to focus on what he has placed in front of us in our personal lives, family and churches. Uh, if we are not if if we were not neglecting these and we have time left over, we are called to care about the needs of the community. However, we should never reverse the order, as Paul told the Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those of the household of faith. The Apostle Paul charged the members of the church in Galatia to, quote, bear one another's burdens, not to bear the burdens of the entire world. We must resist the temptation to carry burdens we were never meant to carry. And if we fail to settle into the callings into which to which God has called us, we will find that we are merely burdening ourselves to death. And I think that proposition is well stated and does fit into what some of we've been thinking about. So it's not that we don't concern ourselves with things that are taking place, but we have to understand the categories and have a more of a systematic approach. And if we are in Christ, we're going to be thinking Christ's thoughts after him. We want to make sure that we're uh, looking at that word and that word is uh, speaking uh, to us and guiding us as we're walking before him. And so he, uh, Nick gives uh, about four, uh, I mean, two different um, uh, things for us to consider, 
let's see, the, did I say four? Yeah, three. Um, abide in the word, continue in prayer, and prioritize immediate relations. And by looking at that, he, is, he describes that uh, prescriptive way of living. He says we can release ourselves from uh, becoming so overwhelmed by every momentary thing and every new twist and turn in culture that we lose our perspective to the point where we live in abject fear. And that's not the way we are to live our lives. Yeah, you're exactly right. And this, I mean, this was convicting for me to read this because it, it is, you know, you are putting more and more burdens. And I really appreciate how, you know, he talks about the the sufficiency of, of scripture here, or alludes to it, the, the God's word. I mean, really, you know, turning to God's word and and focusing on Christ, focusing on becoming more like Christ, uh, becoming more and more aware of how sinful we are, becoming more aware of, you know, what the gospel really means and just how incredible it is that we are forgiven. It helps you deal with all of these other issues that are surrounding us. And, and they become things you can deal with because they are in the periphery uh, because you're focused on Christ. And that is um, formulaic, if you will. Um, it's easier said than done, but uh, that is what we need to be doing, you know, uh, especially, uh, you know, when it comes to God's word. Well, perhaps part of the answer of not burdening ourselves to death is to read a good biography. And um, one has just been written about R.C. Sproul uh, by um, uh, and Stephen Nichols, who was one of his associates. And this is a book review of this book that has just been published on uh, R.C.'s life. He just passed away a few years ago. And the um, and he, of course, is writing something very appreciative. But he's also, you know, uh, opens up his life and says, shows things that uh, we may not know. So um, um, Tim Shalise, a chalice, uh, opens uh, this up and he speaks um to uh, this to say, uh, I, I used to say that no living theologian had impacted my life more than R.C. Sproul. His book, this, his books changed me for me, strengthened me. His sermons and conference talks never failed to grip my heart and thrill my soul. His teaching series fed my uh, mind and taught how uh, how to live out my faith. In so many ways, he guided me into Christian from Christ, into Christian infancy and toward Christian maturity. And I was one of many believers around the world who grieved his death and as a personal tragedy and a significant loss. Though he is no longer a theologian, I'm often recount how much I owe him and I owe still thank God for him. So that's a nice endorsement right there from Tim Chalice. But what it struck me is that this part, since we're talking about not burdening ourselves to death, uh, where he says, though through it all, Nicholas, uh, Nichols, the author, paints a portrait of a man who was transformed by the Bible and gripped by God's character, a man who knew God and who longed to make him known. He shows him to be a, a man of kindness and integrity, of joy and generosity, of seriousness and silliness. And I can attest to the silliness part as well, because I uh, had many incidents in uh, my interactions with him that were uh, silly, but very you very helpful silliness. He shows, he goes on to say, he shows him to be a man who adored his wife, loved his family, and honored his friends. He shows him to be a man raised up to be a great, a gentle warrior, a man with a warm heart and a resolute spirit, a man who would love a sinner but not suffer a fool. 
In other words, he shows him to be exactly the man in private that he appeared in public. So the um, it's probably an interesting uh, book. Usually sometimes you need a little bit of distance after a person's uh, life is over. And so we'll probably see others writing more in-depth things that maybe the theological uh, background to Sproul or some <clears throat> of the intrigues that he had that uh, shaped him's thinking. But uh, this one, uh, very appreciative from uh, Stephen to uh, help us appreciate uh, a, a godly man. Yeah, I mean, my first exposure to the PCA was was R.C. Sproul, you know, my first, um, you know, knowledge of of of, you know, who he is and, and the type of sermons that he would deliver. And these these thoughts at the time that were super new to me, these concepts. Um, and uh, man, I, I sure do miss R.C. Sproul. I, I really do. I, I miss uh, I miss hearing him. And I would uh, very much be interested to know what he would think about everything that's going on in America today. Yes, would. He was a good man, and he he was a time for a, a man who rose up and spoke into the times without uh, varying or swerving. Um, uh, he stayed within the lines that God ordained for us to live in and shows how that can be done uh, with uh, great joy and great uh, strength and, and not having to be afeared of the world. And now number 10, uh, Project Veritas uh, wins an early round in defamation lawsuit against the New York Times. Uh, so this is by Molly Hemingway in The Federalist. A New York judge slammed the New York Times for blurring the lines between news and opinion. Uh, the paper had attempted to get a defamation lawsuit against it dismissed on the grounds that, among other things, its reporters were just expressing their personal opinions when they disparaged the investigative journalists at uh, Project Veritas. And it goes on to say the judge ruled the lawsuit can go forward, finding that Project Veritas showed sufficient evidence that the New York Times may have been motivated by, quote, actual malice and acted, quote, with uh, reckless disregard when it ran several articles against against the investigative journal journalism outfit. And so she goes on to explain what this judge says. Now, there's no guarantee that the suit will eventually be fully successful, although the judge is saying it needs to be taken through the court system and uh, submitted to scrutiny uh, by a court, uh, perhaps maybe a, a judge over it or maybe a jury uh, before a final verdict should be. In other words, don't we can't be dismissive of this. The preliminary evidence gives some indication that uh, the a news uh, paper was including opinion uh, so much in the uh, flow of the news account instead of putting it on the <laughs> from the front page. They should have been moved writing it on the uh, editorial page that um, there it, it crossed the line at least. Prima facie, it shows that that's the case. So it's an interesting uh, yeah. take on this. James O'Keefe and Project Veritas, they keep really being annoyingly successful in, as far as the left's interests are concerned in court. Uh, they they continue to do this. And so this this wasn't a surprise to me. Um, and, you know, you got to think about this this way. They, they really don't like Project Veritas because they do the things that the media used to do before they, you know, just – told lies 100% of the time. And what I mean by that is I can remember growing up watching John Stossel on ABC News put hidden cameras on and put place hidden cameras places. And, 
you know, catch people in ridiculous uh, hypocrisies. What they were saying to the public was not what they were doing behind closed doors. And that's what James O'Keefe's entire business model is. It's I'm going to go and I'm going to put hidden cameras on and I'm going to record people and 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 then I'm going to release it. And this is what the media says and, and this is what you say, but here's what you're really saying in private. And that's why they can't stand him for it. But I'm glad he's standing up for himself. And when they actually defame him, he's challenging them in court. And uh, he very well may win, just like Nicholas uh, Sandman did uh, against uh, CNN for undisclosed, where he, he settled out of court because, you know, they took that kid and they destroyed him uh, and lied about him. And, you know, he's now a very wealthy young man now. Uh, exactly. So w- when we're reading any document, Quilla Report, New York Times, whatever it may be, that's the reason we're saying we always must be discerning. Read carefully, uh, ask questions, check out the sources they claim to have. Uh, It's important that we engage our minds and uh, think about what we're reading so that we can be well-rounded, well-informed, but that we're not just going along with a party line just for for the sake of being party line. If you have a particular uh, predisposition already, uh, let it be challenged by someone who is on the opposite side. Uh, You may uh, change your mind or you may just be strengthened uh, really in a positive way by what you've uh, what you believe well Paul it's uh, been another interesting uh, week to see yes, how our readers <laughs> are doing this so you've been listening to the Quilla Report and Weekly Review and uh, this episode of the podcast has gone through the top 10 for the last week on uh, coming out on March 6th if you do not receive the newsletter you can go to the com. And there's a little box on the right-hand margin that you can click on it, and it's a free uh, uh, e-newsletter that comes to your box every Tuesday. And it has the top 10, and then hopefully you'll not only read those, but also other articles that are on site as well. So we're trusting that uh, you will do that and that uh, you'll continue reading the report and we'll try and be faithful in presenting uh, the wide variety of uh, biblical and theological, historical, personal biographies, uh, editorials, uh, things that challenge us in the life of the church. 